Hello, and welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where we love loud music. The louder the better, because it stops us from think thinking. Um, the, uh, it's hard to find a quote for a movie that isn't in English, but I yes. like that one. Um, it's a one. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one, for sure. We This week, and this one goes out to Jackson Wells, um, we are talking former, about Wong Kar Wai's... Former guest of the show. We are talking about Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express from 1994. That will be our film to remember later. But before, let's introduce our co-hosts. Uh, as usual with me, I have Jeff Grizzolrich. Hello. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing quite well, Hugo. Is it in the extreme heat that we are currently sharing? Yeah, everyone's everyone's yeah. dealing with extreme heat yeah. right now. We're, but uh, we've no, been talking I'm about it. I'm an indoor it. guy. I'm an indoor yeah. guy, so that's not, not an issue for me. <laughs> And, of course, we also have Josh Bradley. How are you doing, Josh? Hello. I'm well. It's not that crazy hot in Los Angeles, but, you know, Jesus. as long as we're not underwater yet, but we will be eventually. But for now, yeah. enjoying the moderate like, climate. Italy has been getting this crazy, like, heat wave the last few weeks, so it's been Texas hot recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's pretty, said it's pretty it was crazy. 100 degrees. It was 100 yeah. degrees for him yesterday. It's Fair pretty enough. wild. Pretty wild. Okay, so... Before we get into Chunking Express, um, let's talk about what we've been watching recently. And uh, I don't know, Josh, would you like to start? Sure. Well, we haven't recorded in like three weeks. I have like a list of yeah. stuff that I'll try to get through as quickly as possible. Um, <clears throat> I went to the New Beverly, which anyone outside of Los Angeles may be aware is the theater that Quentin Tarantino owns. And they do like, it's a repertory theater where they do like double features of old stuff. And I saw a double feature of American Graffiti and Dazed and Confused, which was a really, really, oh. really great night. Uh, I'd never seen American Graffiti, and it was awesome. And Dazed and Confused remains awesome, so recommend both. Um, I It was late one night, and I decided to rewatch Napoleon Dynamite, which was a really great decision, because that movie just brings me a lot of joy. I haven't seen it in probably more than 10 years, but uh, I really like it. Uh, I revisited One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Um... Best Picture winner from 1975. Uh, maybe Jack Nicholson's best role, which is saying something, because he's one of our finest actors. Yeah, uh, done a lot of great roles, yes. so that's high praise. But like, it's it's also been like close to a decade since I've seen One, one Flew the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a movie I watched a lot when I was like in my late teens, early 20s. And man, it's still really good. And I think that might be Nicholson's best role. Um, I randomly rewatched You've Got Mail. Still great. Uh, you guys still need to see it, I think, because last time I brought it up, I, I brought it up recently on this podcast because I just apparently keep rewatching it. Uh, you guys need to check that one out. Um, when I was back home last weekend, I was sitting around with my wife, my father in law, and we just were flipping through the streaming services and we just put on Dumb and Dumber. And that's just always a great idea. Sure. And I recommend doing that any chance you can. Um, I revisited for the first time since it came out Atonement. Joe Wright's Atonement, mm. starring Keira Knightley, a young Trisha Ronan, and um, that one guy. Um, that one uh, guy. The guy McAvoy? Yeah, uh, James McAvoy. What's his that's name? It. Yeah, James, James McAvoy. McAvoy. Yes. Um, guy McAvoy. <laughs> guy McAvoy. <laughs> Atonement's pretty good. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, last no- or yesterday I watched Something's Gotta Give, so I'm in a Nancy Myers kick. Uh, good movie, yeah. Still on your Nancy Myers kick. Well, the first uh, you've got you've got males Nora Ephron, not Nancy Myers, but you know. Oh, I'm sorry, you're correct. They're yes. um the two of them are almost a genre in themselves, so you know. Yes. And that's what I got for the last uh, few weeks. Some good stuff in there. Okay, Grizz. All right. What have you been uh, up much, to? 
the same. I've watched a lot of movies since we last recorded, but I won't dwell on some of them for very long. I watched Pokemon Darkrai. I've been, you know, I'm close to finishing all of the Pokemon movies. I do not recommend you guys watch all the Pokemon movies, but I'm almost <laughs> done, so I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, Thor: Love and Thunder. I, I, I did watch that. Uh, yes, let's do discourse funny. now. <laughs> I did think it was quite funny, I, and I, Hugo is not happy with Thor: Love and Thunder. He's made that very clear to me in our various chats. <laughs> Uh, but I I very much enjoyed it. I don't I don't understand uh, Hugo's dismay over Thor: Love and Thunder. Uh, it's not the best MCU movie by any means, and it's not the best Taika Waititi movie by any means. Yeah. But it's fun. Uh, I watched RRR, which I cannot stress enough. If you have not Hell yeah. watched this movie, I know it, you're like, well, it's not in English. I don't, I don't think I want to watch yeah, it. It's three hours screw long. That noise. It's it's super long. Yeah, screw that noise. You got to watch this movie. It's a it's. A, Fun on a bun. I still great need movie. to. I still need to. <laughs> uh, speaking of other surprisingly great movies, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I enjoyed the crap out of Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I, I talked about that on, on another show I do, and uh, I surprisingly I convinced my friend Jennifer, uh, who is, again, a, another former guest on the show, who notoriously hates most movies that I love. She also loved Chippendale Rescue Rangers. It's it's really great. High approval rating. I need to find the time for that one, too. I hear it's great. Uh Josh is going to be very happy to hear that I finally got around to watching The Birdcage. Woo! Uh, yes! Which means now I can watch his, you know, his video on The Birdcage. How about those uh, dolphins? <laughs> it is interesting to look at this movie at, with a modern lens. It so very I'm, much I'm is, very, yeah. Very excited to watch your video on I'm it. S- I'm still kind of, imp- I don't know if I'm impressed or what, I'm surprised or whatever that that movie came out in 1996. Like, yeah, I mean, so progressive. Uh, yeah, and like, <laughs> I you, I was, you know, you, you hear what that movie's about, and you watch it in 2022, expecting to cringe a lot, given the climate of 1996 and the subject matter, but um, it's aged impossibly well, I think. Yeah. Not perfectly, it's, but it's, there's there's a lot of... Great, great freaking movie, man. Uh, then I watched Sing and Sing 2, because those are movies, and then I watched M. <laughs> Uh, which was, you know, I've been slowly working my way through the IMDb Top 250. M was was excellent. The Fritz Lang the, movie from the, the, the 30s? The Fritz Lang yeah. movie, yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's old. It is? It's about a <laughs> but child it, serial uh, killer. It's about a child serial killer. Well, it's about a, it's it a is, town's response to a child serial killer, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, and uh, it is, uh, it holds up remarkably well. Yeah, it's good. It, it's very good. It, I mean, it's, that's one of the benefits, I think, of sort of, mystery movies that mm-hmm. they that even the really old ones can still hold up quite well uh i watched on the waterfront mm. uh hell which, yeah again excellent movie uh marlon brando marlon brando lee j cobb marlon brando yeah was uh also uh the judge from my cousin Vinny uh happens to be in on the waterfront he really? doesn't have any speaking roles but he's in it <laughs> Oh, also the uh, juror number three from Twelve Angry Men is the people mm-hmm. who know Lee Cobb. That's what people know him as. But yeah, it was you, Charlie. Uh, it was you. On the waterfront, excellent movie. Yes, uh, but there are some facets of it that do not age uh, well, particularly regarding relationships between men and women. <laughs> very anti-union movie too. Also not very, very anti. Yeah. Well, not I mean, <laughs> it's, it's... tepidly anti-union. How about that? Yeah, it's it's anti-union corruption is what it, sure. <laughs> what it's anti. 
Sure. Be Kind Re- Rewind. Hmm. A movie I had seen before, but when I happened upon it on my letterbox, I realized I had not given it a rating, which meant, of course, I had to rewatch it in order to give it an accurate rating. To uh, rewind it, am I right? <laughs> ha ha ha! Sorry. Is uh, that, it's good. Is that Michel Gondry? What? No, it's Jack Black. And, uh, is the Rose director F. Michel Gondry? Oh, it could be. I don't know. Oh, come on. I think so. <laughs> Um, I, uh, if I still had Letterboxd up, I, I would tell you. Here, I can tell you right now. Uh, yes, Michel Gondry is the director of Be Kind Rewind. Uh, should I know that director from something else? Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, of course. Yeah. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this is not as good as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Few movies are. Spotless Mind. But, <laughs> but uh, it's, still, it's still a lot of fun. And it, uh, if you're a, a movie fan, just like kind of the way we are, it has sort of a spirit to it that I just really love. Uh, mm. The Devil Wears Prada, I finally got mm. around to seeing that. Why on earth is Meryl Streep nominated for be- uh, Leading Actress? Why did she? Why, why, I, I saw your letterbox why? review posing this question, and I would say that her presence, even if she's not in the whole movie, her presence looms over the whole movie, and the whole movie is kind of like about people reacting to her. So yeah, I defend it. Plus, that's like among the most iconic performances of the last twenty years. I'd argue. Yeah, she's um, really great. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I got no problem with that. I just you know like poor Anne Hathaway played the actual <laughs> you know lead character. And and then like she sees in the Oscar nominations, not only is she not nominated, but she's apparently not the lead. <laughs> well, she's she's a bit of like uh, she's kind of like the Nick Carraway to her Great Gatsby. Even the story is told yeah. through her eyes. Ostensibly, she's like kind of just like relaying. She's a cipher, kind of just relaying things about this woman. You know. I, my, I also my favorite, feel like, oh, my favorite performance in that movie is Loki Emily Blunt because she's Emily just Blunt, like. Right? Because she's the kindest British woman you'll ever meet when she's speaking just in interviews. And in that movie, she's just awful and it's great. She's terrible. That was the first <laughs> yeah. time I'd seen an Emily Blunt in anything. Yeah. She's, she's awesome, though. Yeah. Um, I feel it was a movie that I think got a little hyped uh, for me. And so it was hard for it to meet the expectations I had going in. That's fair. But it was still good. Uh, Vertigo. Uh, this Hell is another yeah. one of those movies. This happens all the time when I talk about movies that like I, I thought it was a scary movie. And so I, I never watched it. And then, of course, Vertigo is not a psychological thriller. Yes. It's not even, I mean, it's it's barely even that. It's just a thriller. It's a great thriller. Uh, And so I I very much enjoyed that. And then I watched Buster Keaton's The General. Mm. Uh, Mm. That's the train one, right? That's the train one. It's also the pro Confederacy one, which is is a little awkward. (laughs) Uh, I don't remember that aspect of it, I guess. (laughs) I mean, he, he. is fighting for the Confederacy, mm. right? In, in that movie, uh, and uh, so that that well, is it, isn't John, not... isn't that every John Wayne movie though? Like, <laughs> <laughs> point is, uh, Buster Keaton hilarious. Uh, the antics, you know, right up there with Chaplin, of course, in the silent movie era for you know some of the best movies. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the whole when I when I was really paying attention, I was like, oh no, he's. He's fighting for the South. This is, <laughs> I'm not happy about that. Tough Pete. Uh, Hugo is going to be very happy to see that I watched The Elephant Man. Mm. Yes, uh, we talked about this. We did. You and I talked a little bit about it. It's uh, definitely the uh, least Lynchian Lynch movie I've seen. Right. Uh, which, yeah. of course, made it very appealing it, to me. It's not the least <laughs> Lynchian movie made by David Lynch, but um, you should definitely watch the, st- the Straight Story, which is a Disney movie that 
David Lynch directed. I think you you specifically, Grizz, you would you I would, would love love that movie. Yeah, I will add it to the you watch list. It. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I watched a couple other silent films: The Gold Rush, uh, Sherlock Junior. Uh, you know, both very good. I watched Three Idiots, which is you know an Indian film that's you know again mm-hmm. on the IMDb top two fifty. Uh, very very funny movie. Very uh, heartwarming story uh, with some you know very heavy subject matter in there as well. Uh, is it one of the best two hundred fifty movies of all time? No. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Gray Man, which just came out on Netflix. Uh, you guys can skip that one. And then Marcel, The Shell with Shoes On. This movie is incredible. That's it is right Paddington yeah. levels of heartwarming and fun, and it's funny. Uh, and it has some good commentary on the misuse of social media and stuff like that. Uh, it's brilliant. I absolutely love Marcel. And I really, like, I'm, I'm a little sad that more people aren't going to get a chance to see it in theaters. But hopefully when it comes to streaming services, it'll get the credit it's due. Hey, and, uh, you know, I'll see it sometime in 2023. So. <laughs> it's <laughs> so good. Yeah. I've been seeing this movie and I'm very jealous, as usual, of movies not coming out. Um, but I guess my turn. Um, I did get to see a few new releases, uh, more mainstream side, but it is what it is. Um, I watched The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Mm. Uh or the uh, Nick Cage self-referential, you know, self-aware movie. Um, Nick Cage literally playing Nick Cage, not just... Nick, Nick Cage literally playing Nick Cage yeah. in a heightened version of himself, I guess. But a uh, good movie. Like, it, it was fun. It, you know, it didn't blow me away. I feel like it's like, I don't know, it it's dollar store adaptation, if that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, but it was, it was cool. Like, I think it was a good time. It, it wasn't amazing, but it was fine. It, it was fine. Yeah. Thought, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those like, ah, this is a seven out of 10, but it's kind of, kind of, kind of funny. I, I appreciate seven it. might be generous, it but it's, it's fine. Yeah. I, it was I gave it eight yeah. out of 10. I, I thought it was very funny. I'm glad you guys liked yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Then I watched Michael Mann's thief. Oh, um, hell yeah. Which is great. Um, yes. Just an incredible film. Like, the fact that it was a um, director- like theatrical directorial debut is insane. Um, it's just one of the most confident uh, theatric- first theatrical movies that I've seen by anyone. Like, it's, it's ridiculous how much you can just see Michael Mann's visual style in it. Um, uh, and, you know... It- I think Heat is a better film overall. Like, I agree. Just because I think I think the narrative uh, side of Heat just kind of is more fleshed out. I enjoy it more. But like on a purely stylistic level and, and directorial level, it's it li- he literally came out of the gate having having it all. It's hell, movies. Hell of a James Kahn performance too. In the middle, of James Kahn is the late it, James Kahn. Incredible. It, we actually it was actually on one of the li- on one of the. Um, one of the movies that we might have watched for Large Popcorn Movie Club, but we didn't pick it. Like we picked The Rock, which I also watched. But we did a like an extra episode of that podcast to do to talk about Thief because James Khan passed away. Yeah. So we decided to do an episode on that. It it's great, fantastic. Um, then I also watched uh, Thor: Love and Thunder, and uh, okay, more discourse, more discourse. What did you think? <laughs> I I I. Uh, initially gave it 3.5 stars and the more I thought about it after a day or two I was like no I can't this is a three star movie for me it's 
it's a six for me. It's okay, which, but which and means it, that it's still an overall positive experience. For yeah, it. it's okay, and I and I think I'm getting a bit tired of okay in the MCU because I, for me, all the shows are most of the shows. Most of the shows for me have been okay, fine, like kind of cool, but the second half I never really care, um, and I think Love and Thunder has some similarity was with them where all the character characters are cool i enjoy them i enjoy spending time with them but it just doesn't amount to anything for me and i you know i didn't think it was as funny as ragnarok i didn't think it was as heartfelt as ragnarok it looks embarrassing i'm sorry but for the biggest franchise in the world a movie that is 200 million dollars uh, of budget cannot look like that. I'm sorry. I don't. I understand COVID. I understand not delay the movie. Like Jurassic World, a movie that I hated, looks it, substantially better than Thor: Love and Thunder, and I think that's insane. Is um, that for Phase then, Five? Just announced yesterday. Uh, let's not so talk about it. I, I did want to talk <laughs> a, a little bit about that. If, if we can, if you want. Time, Let, but I'll, I'll finish my list with them. We'll slowly talk. We'll slow, talk a bit about Phase Five if you want. Um. I also I watched Grave of the Fireflies, which is incredible. It's it's um, just just an amazing film. Extremely extremely miserable. Um, so not not a an easy watch, but a, a great film. It kind of showcases. It's something that you've said before, Jeff. That it you know it showcases how animation can be more than just fun kids movies. Um, in in a really uh, powerful way. And finally, I watched uh, The Rock. Um, the Nicolas Cage, you know, uh, Sean Connery film, which was awesome. I was not expecting to enjoy it as much as I did, but I had a great time with it. Like, I loved that you you messaged me and and our and our friend Will, who's also yeah. a guest on the show, and said, uh, "What happened to Michael Bay?" It's seriously, like, <laughs> what happened? This movie's great. What did he do? Like, he spent like ten years or something just doing Transformers sequels, and it's like. I don't know, man. Like this is this is really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and that's it. That's what I watched. And yeah, phase five, I guess. Phase we can talk five, about it if you want. Yeah, just, just real quick. You know, Hugo's main complaint has lately has been about the volume of things that are not the volume of things that are being made, and also the use and also of the, the volume. volume. <laughs> yeah, stop. Date. Just delete the volume. I'm sorry. The only person um, that's allowed to use the volume is is Craig Fraser, who shot the Batman. That's it. Sorry, it sucks. You're not even going to allow them to use it for the Mandalorian. It's, it looked great it, in season one of the Mandalorian. It does not. It doesn't. It you every scene that is not shot on the volume looks significantly better, and you can tell every time if you're looking for it. And I and I am at the point where I cannot help but look. But for now it. you're looking for it because yeah. I know it's there, and so I'm always constantly. Oh, this scene looks great. Oh, this scene doesn't look great, and it's always. Oh, this is on the volume, and this is not, and I'm like. Like, if you're going to use it, don't use it as a shortcut, but use it as something that enhances what you're making. Not everything can be done that way, and I don't think a film like Thor should have been done that way. Like, apparently they had four hours of footage in a rough cut, and they just found the movie in the edit, and they shot a whole bunch of stuff, and at the very last second they were asking vfx people to just, oh, okay, you have to finish this sequence because that one's going to be in the movie, and this one isn't, and then they were changing. Like, I don't think that's how you should make things. I think... Marvel, I I have enjoyed the MCU so far. I've most for the most part I've enjoyed the the movies that they've released in Phase Four. My problem is do less but do it better. 
like there's it feels like at this point they are just churning out content for the sake of content and 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 I and I it, it feels to me like they're not even trying to make things as good as they can be. It feels like so, they are taking shortcuts and I and wanted, I find that frustrating. The thing I wanted to ask is looking at the slate for phases 5 and 6. Yeah. Cuz they, oh, they have announced uh, quite a large a window here. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot, but it does appear to be less content per year. No, it's not. Is it's, it not? No. Cuz I didn't see any new TV shows you 20, know, on that 20, timeline. Tw- Oh, there's 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 TV shows. No, Secret Invasion, Marvel's Echo, oh, Loki right. season two, Ironheart, oh, and right. Agatha, yeah. and there's that's five big, TV. Yeah. Sh- in 2023, there are five TV shows and four movies. In 2022, there were five TV shows and three movies. So in fact, so it's next year, more. there's going to be more than there was this year, and that's just that's. Well, too much and that's interesting because I, I i wasn't able to watch the announcements as they were yeah i just last watched night. the image of the timeline and i was like uh, but oh so my God. I, what i noticed was uh people on my facebook timeline the things that they were posting about and mm-hmm. i didn't see posts about the tv shows which i think because no one which, cares let's which I was say, be made real me think that that there, there, there was going to be less tv shows in the future no. but in reality it's apparently that there, the tv shows is just no one is excited to talk about them no which uh leads me to believe that maybe Hugo's got a point. They should uh, reel it back in a little bit. Josh, what do you think? Uh, I think that it used to be you'd need to see maybe two or three movies a year to keep up with all the stuff. And now you have to, like Hugo just said, see three movies and also watch five TV shows. So your investment used to be about nine to 12 hours a year and now it's like 60. So you're going to get... If Burnout hasn't already set in, it's going to set in very soon, I think. And the thing is, it... I, you know, it is a bit hardcore. It is a bit too much. But, like, if I was like, oh, these TV shows are so cool and creative and different, I would be still be like, okay. Like, it, it's not for everyone, but, like, I understand why they're doing this. But to me, it feels like all these TV shows are pretty much the same. Like, they have three cool episodes where they introduce all the cool characters and they set up the dynamics. And then the last three episodes are like, okay? And they... Every single one of these shows has yeah. ended with the last episode being two people except for loki two people shooting different colored beams at each other and they reveal the the comic accurate um you know yeah. costume. costume every single one come yeah. on like you know i get that you're sticking to a formula because it works but at some point people have, must get bored of it so um, a- as we are beginning to question question god here my question to you guys is do you think that we will actually see avengers secret wars in theaters on november 7th 2025 will this movie come out on its projected date in three and a half years uh probably not but i would expect it to not be far away from it like i, yeah. I the thing I even in the off. yeah even in the past they have announced a timeline and then moved it around depending on you know contracts and what movie made more sense and, like and the world what, what's happening <laughs> that the thing about Kevin Feige, he's very good at having a rough idea of what is going to happen and then kind of making it up as he goes along so he can change stuff around. Like, but, I'm sure they don't have, like, a specific plan for exactly what that movie's going to be, but they understand that, oh, we're kind of building towards that. Um, two Avengers movies in the same year. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see. That, that's <laughs> why I don't see that happening, because yeah. I, I, think, I think the second one gets pushed at the very least. Yeah. You know, uh, Hugo, you just alluded to the fact that, like, Feige has a plan, but sometimes it can change. I, I recently learned that 
uh, Multiverse of Madness was supposed to come out before Spider-Man No Way Home. And that's interesting to me. And uh, also, like, uh, Multiverse of Madness went into production before anything had aired from WandaVision. And WandaVision really feeds directly into Multiverse of Madness. And that's actually possibly why some of the audience response to Multiverse of Madness may have been a little more tepid because Marvel did not anticipate the response to WandaVision and the sympathy mm-hmm. for the Wanda Maximoff character coming out of that show. Mm-hmm. And then um, she kind of blows through that audience sympathy very quickly in Multiverse of Madness, but because that's because yeah. they didn't know they would have that, you know, have that to play with. Um, so it's interesting. It's and interesting also, to see like, like, how this plays out. Sam Raimi in interviews has said, oh yeah, I saw the important stuff of WandaVision. Yeah, and uh, I'm like, God bless Marvel for giving uh, Sam Raimi a highlight reel. <laughs> a highlight reel. Yeah, like, you know, and I'm not, and I and I don't care, like, because the thing is, a lot of people now are, the hardcore MCU fans are complaining, oh, they're not building up to anything. There's no big bad. I don't care about that stuff. I just want each individual project to be, to have an, uh, like, a, at least some interesting creative idea. And for the last like, I think for the years between Winter Soldier and Endgame, the interesting idea was that they were building up to something that was yes. that felt organic, right? And for me now, the idea is, oh, we're going to do a whole bunch of different things. They're all going to have their own style. But I don't think that's that has been su- successful in, in as much as they want. Um, even though I really enjoyed Certainly most of the movies. not to the extent that the other movies were successful. It hasn't been... Well, no, successful, I mean, I mean, successful. I don't mean by dollars. I don't yeah, even okay. mean by dollars. I mean by the quality of the film and yeah. the quality of the storytelling. I don't think that it has reached the level that it was at when Endgame finished. But, but like, I really I enjoyed Shang-Chi. No, I really enjoyed Shang-Chi. I really liked Shang-Chi. I, I really enjoyed uh, No Way Home. And I actually quite enjoyed Multiverse of Madness as well. Me do. I'm, I'm just like, if these three movies had come out in a year, I'd be like, wow, Phase 4 is amazing. But like, the vast majority of Phase 4 has been TV shows, of which the vast majority of the time, I'm like, the only reason why I'm watching this is because I want to keep up. And, you know, I've already decided that I'm not watching She-Hulk because I am i can't. I'm so tired. And I'm sure there will be stuff in She-Hulk that when I get to the next project, I'll be like, oh, man, I don't know what this is. What and- I kind of see happening is what they wanted to avoid, which was like originally they had the movies and then they had their TV shows that were on actual airing, airing on television that right. were related. But if, if it turns out but that they really. didn't do well, yeah. they, they could just pretend it's not Canon and they mm-hmm. push it away. But now they've made the, these all, you know, these TV shows all Canon. Uh, but I think we're going to see that they're going to make it so that you don't have to have watched every TV show to be ready for all the movies. Uh, but I wonder if it's just it's too late now and they've set people up with the expectation that they do need to watch everything. And so then they're going to burn out, like Josh is saying. I, I'm not there yet. I, I still think that they're they're overall fun. I, I've enjoyed all of them. Uh, and I think they're, they're good. But uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I do think that they probably should slow down in the interest of the longevity of the franchise. My my thing is, I don't think they're bad. And I, I almost would prefer if they were bad. Like, because... Because they'd learn a lesson if it was it, bad. For me, it's feeling <laughs> like right now they're not even trying. They are settling yeah. for fine. And I I don't want to spend 60 hours a year watching stuff that I, I think is fine. Like, you know, if I watch a movie and I don't like it or I think it's fine, it's like, okay, but I, you know, 
I at least tried to get into something that I didn't know what I was getting into. Like if I'm watching five TV shows and they're all they all feel samey and they're all fine, I'm it, it gets frustrating because if you know Especially why am I doing it then? With the MCU, you are aware. I know of what, what you're to expect. Yeah. yeah, I know what to expect. I'm not like trying something new and it didn't work out. It just feels. Yeah. If I, I get know. disappointed by a movie that I knew nothing about going into, I'm it's not like, mad about that because it's like, well, yeah. you know, I didn't know what I was getting into. So, like, okay, but if yeah, if you know that every MCU is just going to be mid tier for yeah. you, then then your time's going to be better spent talking exactly. about something else like the exactly. Chunking Express. Which uh, I think we can yes. move into now. <laughs> Great segue. Good job. The Chunking Express, the or just sorry, Chunking Express, a, Chunking uh, Express. The, I think the furthest thing from an MCU movie we could possibly talk about. Um, okay, Chunking Express is a 1994 Hong Kong film written and directed by Wong Kar Wai. Um, I think it kind of defies genre. It's kind of a drama. It's got some crime elements. It's got some comedy it's a romance. romance elements. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to exactly define the film, but yeah, that's. I think that's a, that will be a recurring thing where it kind of sits in its own little weird Wikipedia niche. says romantic crime comedy drama film. So Exactly, so it's kind of everything. Drama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the title, uh, Chunking Express, is kind of a reference to like Hong Kong itself, which which is where Wong Kar Wai grew up and worked most of his life. Um, Chunking refers to the area that Wong Kar Wai grew up in, the Chunking Mansions, uh, which is kind of a residential area. And in Express refers to the Midnight Express, which is this... Uh, little food stand that was kind of famous in central Hong Kong. And that is the name of the food stand in the movie as well. Um, the movie was made during, uh, basically he was on a break uh, during the long complicated editing process of Ashes of Time. Ashes of Time is a, a wuxia film, which is like a um, fantasy martial arts Chinese film. Um, but the production of it had a lot of problems. And basically during a break from that, he, as he said, I, I, well, I had nothing to do. I decided to make Chunking Express following my instinct. So the idea was to make something very instinctual, stylistically, like, interesting and not too, uh, you know, fixed, like Ashes of Time that kind of has to fit within a very specific genre. It was a bigger budget production as well. Um, um, and, and something with a, with a more loose structure. In fact, like, the, the script hasn't even completely been, been finished for the second story, as we'll talk about. Um, um, while they were shooting the movie, they had to take a break and then finish the script and then come back to the movie. So it was kind of a more of an experimental thing that he did over the span of a few months. Um, he talked about, this was interesting, he talked about Haruki Murakami, the, the Japanese uh, author, as being one of the main sources of inspiration for this film's tone and themes. And he specifically cited the novel Norwegian Wood, which I thought was interesting when I saw that because I I had bought this book like five days ago. Hugo's holding up a copy of Norwegian Wood. I was holding out a copy of of Norwegian Wood. Like, I did not know that this was an inspiration for this movie, but I found out doing a little bit of research. I mean, research the Wikipedia page for this podcast. (laughs) Um, Deep involves research. Deep involved research here. Um, the film was shot by Christopher Doyle. Christopher Doyle, if you don't know him, he's a um, he's a, an Australian uh, uh, Chinese, uh, Cant- I guess Ch- Hong Kong uh, dual citizen, but he lived in Hong Kong at the time. And in fact, the apartment that Tony Leung's character is in was his his apartment at the time. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. And he's the cinematographer. He also 
worked on other movies with Wong Kar He did Days of Being Wild, Ashes of Time, Fallen Angels, Happy Together, In the Mood for Love, 2046. So, you know, it, he's a very... Wong Kar has a very specific specific visual style that is kind of recognizable and you know of course he collaborated with the same cinematographer for most of his movies so um he'd have a big role in that um chunking express was almost uh universally well received from a critical standpoint um it was cited on various lists of the best films of all time specifically you know it's on the bbc's top 100 foreign language films it in the sight and sound list at it's top 250 though not the top 100 um it, it's also on the times all time 100 list um and it received 10 nominations for the 1995 hong kong film awards uh for which it won four of of those it won best picture won best director Best Actor for Tony Leung, and Best Editing. So. Real quick, real quick, you mentioned Sight and Sound. Um, it's like, I think, number 140 or something like that. On the most 144. Recent, yeah, 144. Yeah. But also in, tw- in 2002, they polled the Sight and Sound people for uh, the best movie of the last 25 years. And yeah. that it cracked the top 10 in that mm-hmm. poll. It was number 8. And if you yeah. like, I can tell you the top ten right right now from so yeah, this is please, from okay. from 1977 to 2002. Number one, Apocalypse Now. Number two, Raging Bull. Number three, Fanny and Alexander, the Bergman film. Number four, Goodfellas. Five, Blue Velvet. Six, Do the Right Thing. Seven, Blade Runner. Eight, Chunking Express. Nine, Distant Voices Still Lives, which is a movie I haven't heard of. And then a tied for tenth, uh, Once Upon a Time in America. And then the Edward Yang movie, one and a, oh, a one and a two. So. Hmm. There's some bangers in there, man. So, so yeah. yeah, good, good, good company. company. Good company. Yeah. Um, it only this is interesting because you you mentioned going to the New Beverly, which is Tarantino's mm-hmm. uh, theater, yep. and yep, yep, yep. interestingly, this movie was distributed uh, by Tarantino's distribution company, Rolling Thunder. It was under Miramax, but it it was specifically Rolling Thunder that distributed the film in the U.S. His, his um, first several films were all Miramax, so like he's got a relationship with them. Yeah. yeah. It is. It only it never exceeded exceeded twenty theaters, but it made about six hundred thousand dollars in the U.S. So not a huge success, of course. But like Tarantino also distributed the DVD through his company, so you know he was a fan of Wong Kar Wai's work and yeah, kind of wanted to do that. He he kind of has done this for some, uh, especially Asian directors at the time where you know most Asian movies kind of didn't really translate to the West in the way that maybe they 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 were able to do now. Um, I mean, they still don't for the most part, but there is always, you know, a few three movies a year that that, that always kind of translate. Um, okay, so let's get into the premise of the film, which is uh, maybe one of the most interesting things to talk, to talk about. In fact, um, the film is divided into two stories, uh, which are about Hong Kong police officers who are struggling with love and loneliness in the streets of Hong Kong. Um, so the first story stars Takeshi Kaneshiro, who is actually a Japanese actor, but he, well, he has, like, dual citizenship. He speaks, like, 17 languages. He's a cool, interesting person to read the Wikipedia page for if you want to. Um, He's a young police officer named uh, Hekiwu, who has recently broken up with a girl named Mei and goes through one night in Hong Kong where he tries to get back in touch with Mei uh, and then runs into a mysterious woman in a blonde wig. Who also happened to be a, happens to be a drug smuggler played by Bridget Lin. Um, the second story, uh, they are, and they are told in sequence. So basically, mm-hmm. the first like forty minutes of the movie is one story, and the last hour of the movie is the second story. 
Um, the second story is told over a, like a longer period of time. It goes through, uh, I think, several weeks or at least I several think a few days. weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, it stars Tony Leung, uh, who is also dealing with, with a big breakup. He is also a Hong Kong police officer too. Hong Kong police officer, yeah. of course. Yeah, he frequents this little food stand, the Midnight Express, which I mentioned before, and where he meets Faye, who is played by Faye Wong, who is was at the time like a big famous pop star uh, in Hong Kong and, and in China uh, who works at this food stand. So his his number is COP663 and that's the only name we're ever given for him. We don't actually have a name. Um, uh, he has left a letter by his ex-girlfriend at the food stand and in it there is a key to his apartment. So Faye basically decides to give him the letter, which he initially refuses, but she takes the key and kind of in a voyeuristic kind of way goes into his apartment and decides not to steal or anything, to just kind of clean it up and fix it up and, and put it back in a more uh, habitable state, I would say. So that's uh, roughly the premise. We're going to get into that more later. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that. You just kind of explained we'll, we'll, what, what she was doing there, and I'm not sure I really know what she was doing there, but yeah, continue. Okay. Yep. We'll, we'll talk about it. Um, also, it, it's worth mentioning that uh, the first story also takes place in large part at the Midnight Express. Yeah, uh, because uh, he yeah he is often at the midnight using, phone using phone the phone yeah to to, to, to call, call up his, to get various messages. <laughs> yeah to leave voice messages to various women that he's sad also didn't his ex girlfriend work there May uh, I, I think uh, it was uh, another May because like there's another the, May another May yeah. that he was yeah. that the owner of the Midnight Express wanted him to set him up with yeah 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 it wasn't the same May I don't think but maybe she we did work even, there and we before. never even see that May. We never even seen that may now. I don't think so. Um, okay, so let's start with some general thoughts on uh, the Wong Kar Wai film uh, *Chunking Express*. Had you seen any Wong Kar Wai films before? And what do you think about uh, *Chunking Express* in general? Grizz, Josh, Grizz, give me your thoughts. I had not seen any Wong Kar Wai movies before this. Uh, I, I obviously have some that I will be seeing. Uh, particularly in the mood for love, I have to see because it's on my lists of the IMDb top 250 and the Letterbox 250. So if I'm going to finish those lists, I got to watch in the mood for love. Uh, so also our friend Jackson, of course, has this is one of his favorite movies. Period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been on my radar for a while to to watch this, but this was the first one I have seen. Uh, what about you, Josh? I have seen in the mood for love. The movie just evoked. Um... And that's it. So I saw that in this. And uh, they're both similar in the fact that they're both kind of um, very romantic and stylistic and take place in Hong Kong and um, are kind of about, like, falling in love under, like, unusual circumstances or difficult circumstances, I guess. Um, That's more the case for In the Middle for Love than for this because I don't know if – I don't know if technically people are falling in love in this. I guess they are, but I, I don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. Um, they're, they're both very good. And I, I can, you can tell that, you know, the same guy made both movies. Um, I think I like In the Mood for Love more, but uh, mm-hmm. this is also very good. Yeah. Is he, In the Mood for Love one movie, or is it basically two movies like this one? Uh, it's one, one movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. more of a... I think... I mean, In the Mood for Love also has kind of a loose structure. It's kind of it episodic. Does. Mm-hmm. In the, yes. in a, in a similar way, but but, but it's, it is it's hard, still it's hard to get a sense of how story it's hard to get a sense of like time passes. yeah exactly what the timeline is like how yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. what's your history yeah, with this it, movie uh, and Wong Kar Wai Hugo I 
I have seen this before, and I have seen quite a few of his movies, actually. I've, I've seen uh, Chunking Express, I've seen Fallen Angels, I've seen Happy Together, I've seen In the Mood for Love, and I have seen The Grandmaster, um, which mm. is his version of an, uh, an Ip Man story, uh, if you know the Ip Man movies with uh, Donnie Yen. Um, very strange film, that one. Um, I really enjoy his films. Um, I particularly enjoyed that This one is my favourite. Um, just there's something about it that, that got me more. Um, uh, for some reason, I felt more involved, uh, I think, with the characters compared to In the Mood for Love. Although In the Mood for Love is, I think, on a just technical filmmaking level, kind of a masterful film. Um, and also, I think Happy Together kind of isn't mentioned as much, but is a great film. It's uh, basically a story of these two gay Hong Kong men who meet in in Argentina, and it's all set in Buenos Aires, and it it an in, incredible film. And it, another one we were talking about, Birdcage, very progressive that you wouldn't expect to hold up as much as it does. But yeah, I really like his movies, and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing the few that I haven't seen. Um, and I love this one. I what did you guys uh, think of this one? Because I on a rewatch, I actually enjoyed it even more than I had originally because. You know, something about it clicks into clicked with me more. So I, I I enjoyed it. I, I mm-hmm. I'll tell you that up front. I did very much enjoy the movie. I enjoyed the second. And keep keep in mind, Jackson is listening. Yes, I enjoyed the second portion <laughs> significantly more than the first right. one. Uh, in fact, you know, well, I mean, we'll get into our ratings later. But I, if it, if the movie had just been the story of the second one, it would have been a higher rating for me overall. Uh, the first half, you know, being taken into account, I didn't love as much. Uh, the <laughs> the structure is I, interesting, but I don't know what the point. Like, what what was what is the point of doing it in uh, doing this story in two parts? Why why was that the goal? Right. I don't we'll understand get- it. Right. Well, I think we'll talk a bit more about the structure in a minute, but uh, we'll get back to we'll circle back to that. But give me your general sort of uh, little review, Josh. What, how did you feel about this movie? Uh, as I kind of alluded, it's stylistic and I think pretty romantic, kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I've mentioned on this podcast that I like I'm a sucker for story structure and so when there is a lack of structure like this one it's sometimes hard for me to latch on to the narrative and um i think that might have been the case a little bit here where like uh it kind of keeps me at arm's length a little bit and like i'm trying to like grasp what it's doing it's hard for me to like it's hard for me to get a grasp what it's doing but um it's still very good and i still liked it um but i'm curious to talk about it more i guess because i think it's it's also possible that like i'm missing something Potential. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm yeah. feeling as well. Is I, I feel like that I must have missed uh, something that uh, is going to my, when my eyes are open to it, that it'll uh, enlighten me a little more. I I, do, I will say that I you know I pulled up uh, Rotten Tomatoes just to, like get the little blurbs from the critics, and I also pulled up Letterbox just to see what people in there are saying. And like I'm seeing mm-hmm. a lot of see it twice advice, mm-hmm. um, where like it kind of clicks more on second viewing, and um, I believe that I definitely buy that. It. I would agree with that. I, I quite enjoy that. Enjoyed the film on the first watch as well because I, I'm not. A, I guess I'm not a sucker for for like structure. I'm, I don't necessarily look for it in the same way. I well, I like I when a film is. I more so am uh, on first watch. Like the the point yeah, of structure exactly. is like 
organize a story in a way that it, you can digest it. And like, if you already know the story because it's your second watch, you don't need that as exactly. much. So the that makes sense. The film doesn't signpost itself at yeah. all, so you don't know what to expect, and it is surprising. Like at one point, the main characters leave the film, and a new story begins. And it's like on a first watch, I I also found that a little disorienting. Uh, if if you understand what I mean, like. They literally, the, the end of the first story is the main character from the first story bumping into the one of the main characters of the second story. Yep. Oh, and now we're following them. Yep. And he's gone. Um, yeah. Which I think... With no or, resolution to it, anything that happened in the first it is, half. <laughs> it, there is le- less resolution. And I agree, the second story is a little more fleshed out. It gets a little more time. We get to see the ex-girlfriend, you know, both main both the the police officers in the film are struggling with sort of a big breakup one we never get to see a flashback to it and the other one we do Uh, there's a little more i think character building in that sense um but for me on a second watch it was all about uh just the vibes of the film like the film it to me on a scene by scene basis is so as you said josh very romantic it it drew me in with its visuals with its style i love the music i think the performances are actually very cool in an understated sort of way we have faye who is a little more over the top but everybody else is like feels very real despite the fact that the movie in some ways is still quite heightened and almost hyper romantic um i on the second watch i loved it i was like oh my damn is this is my favorite one kawaii movie for sure um and I love it. I I don't know. It's it's hard to explain why. I think it's um, I kind of picked it in a way because I wanted to rewatch it. And on a rewatch, I think it's a movie. And I was t- telling you guys this before the show that it's kind of difficult to explain why I love it. I just kind of really connect to every single scene and every single character of it. And I'm not exactly sure how to explain that. But let's get into a structure. So you we were talking kind of talking about the structure and how. Uh, it may n- or not work for us. Um, I think the we're, we're both gonna story... spoil things, right? We are, yeah, we are definitely going to spoil things for sure. Um, I think both stories have, you know, police officer from Hong Kong struggling with uh, kind of loneliness and a breakup, falling in love or falling out of love, and or being on a, be, being on their own after a big breakup, um, kind of not knowing what what they are going to do about it and where they're going, and kind of stuck in a sense. Um, Originally, in fact, there was actually supposed to be a third story that made the film even more of a kind of a three episode thing. But apparently, because the second story had developed a bit more where they, you know, as I said before, they had a break, they finished the script. And whilst writing the second half of the script, they had more ideas to flesh it out a little bit more. That movie that was that the, the one that story that was supposed to be the third one became Fallen Angels, which is another Wong Kar Wai film. I think it released it the year after, so they, they kind of made it in sequence with this, and it has similar themes and ideas. Um, but yeah, did the, did the structure take away a lot from you guys, is, is what I guess what I want to ask. So, I don't I don't know if take away is exactly the right thing. Like I said, I still enjoyed it, but I, I just, I don't I, I don't understand what the benefit to the story is of telling it this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
honestly, I think having a third episode would actually improve the uh, the movie for me because it would feel more episodic. Yeah, mm-hmm. more by having yeah. a third more intentional. Whereas this feels like the the first forty minutes, uh, while interesting, uh, at the end at the end of the movie, it feels like a complete afterthought to me because it's you know there it was a significant increase in how much the story is fleshed out and how much more engaging uh, the characters were for me in the second half of the, in the second story uh also the the uh i guess we're gonna get into the visuals later but in the first half some of the visuals literally made me sick to my stomach <laughs> <laughs> and so it was hard for me to like right. fight through that first movie the first you know segment because it, it, it was making me uncomfortable and not like in a, ooh, this is interesting. It's making me uncomfortable. It was just making me ill. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it definitely goes for something with a visual style, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so I, I guess for some reason in the second watch for me, it, it really did not. Uh, I almost, because I knew what was coming, so I almost didn't notice the, the discrepancies in the two stories. Like, I do agree that the first time I watched the movie as well, I kind of forgot about the first story once I finished the movie. Like, what you're left with is very much, you know, Tony Leung and Fei Wong and their little story. And, I agree, you know, yeah. The ending itself is, you know, it it leaves things up, up in the air, but it is kind of how a movie would end, you know? Like, we don't exactly know what's going to happen with them, but they have kind of reconnected. But it's it a has cool a ending. feeling of... It has a feeling of resolution. It, it does have a feeling of, of having completed the story. And... And I definitely would say that if there was a way for the first story to be brought back in the end in some way, I think that would be the extra touch that would make the movie even better than I think it is. Um, do you guys think that if... What if they had intercut the stories? Do you guys think that would have worked? Or would that just have been kind of confu- even more confusing? I mean, it's already you know so loosely structured that, that I might have been... You know, more interesting, and in mm. fact, it might have made this made the first story feel more relevant to me overall. If we see their paths crossing more often, even if like it doesn't actually impact each of their stories, seeing uh, uh, the first police officer, yeah, you know, in the background on the phone while this scene is happening, like having them more interconnected, probably would have made the whole thing more engaging for me. What do you think, Josh? I think that in theory, yes, but I think in practice, it wouldn't have worked as well, particularly because the stories aren't interacting. If you were cutting back and forth between them, I think the audience is anticipating them, the intersection of the stories. And if that intersection, oh, does, if that intersection doesn't happen, that's going to be frustrating. And, um, and if it's not, if they do force an intersection and it's not satisfying, then they're yeah. ultimately, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think separating them in the timeline, having one than the other kind of gives you permission to take them each, you know, on their own as their own thing. And I think integrating them would have changed that expectation a bit. So uh, I think for what it's going for, I kind of like that they're one after the other. Um, I agree with Grizz that if there had been a third one, it would kind of underline the point a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't mind there's two, like, I like two half movies. Um, But I agree with you guys that the second one's a lot more. And I think the consensus across the internet is the second one's a lot more powerful than the first one and more memorable. I don't really know what to make the first one. I don't know if to make the second one either, to be Hugo honest, but I feel like Hugo I have a better grasp. The first one has, 
Hugo says that the first one has a resolution, and I'm... What, well, what, what is the resolution of the first one? I feel like I missed it. Okay, so to me... Lady kills the, the dude who uh, betrayed yeah, her. The lady, yeah, the lady kills like, the dude and takes off the wig, okay? And that's... Whatever, that's her so night. that's the end of her story, but... And <laughs> for him, I, to me, by the end, he's like... It is the 1st of May, 1994 now, and he's done... And he gets a birthday wish. He gets a birthday wish, and he's Mm -hmm. done hanging on to the possibility of the relationship coming back. Like, he's done eating the damn pineapples every night. And and that's his... You know, that's kind of his little resolution. But, like, the way Wong Kar Wai talks about this movie, like, I read a few things about him. Like, the way... What he wanted to make was... What if Hong Kong, like, what if lonely people in Hong Kong was the character and we just kind of throw some little stories vignettes. in there? Yeah. And like, they are vignettes. Like, it, it, they're not, even the stories themselves, they don't, I mean, I think the second one a bit more, but the first one specifically is just like, these two lonely people on very different strange paths in Hong Kong, what would happen if, if they met? And that's it. And that is kind of the point. Like, there's no larger maybe grand idea about it it's like what if you were a lonely police officer in hong kong and ran into this weird lady with a wig and and to me the how much i enjoy the vibes and the music and the style of the movie makes that enough but i understand that narratively it might not be as satisfying and so that that's my issue is that there's a resolution for her little Mm -hmm. story with the the guy at the bar uh, yeah, you know that she she shoots him and takes off her wig and and, and she gets out of that life. Yes, yeah, that's the resolution for her. But I didn't feel like and and maybe you know maybe I could see the resolution that you're saying for the police officer that he's he's finally over his uh, previous girlfriend and he's yeah. ready to move on. But because their stories were being told together, I was anticipating a resolution of their story together interacting. Right, and there really wasn't like it just they 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 meet. They spend the night together, sort of. Like, they don't actually talk at all. <laughs> they, they go to a hotel room and she, like, falls asleep immediately. And he's he just, like, cleans watches, her shoes. He watches old movies and orders room service, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so they're, they're not really... That man really... eats an obscene amount of food in this movie, <laughs> yes. by the way. And there's, there's something to be said, like, it's, it's kind of, like, poetic uh, mm-hmm. that they are both lonely, but they're being lonely together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I kind of like that. I would have liked that aspect to be brought forward to lead, a little more to lead into something else yes at least well, okay. I, I think i think what you're getting at is like a unique kind of intimacy and i think yeah. that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what what bridges the two stories honestly um the the opening lines of the movie is voiceover from the first cop and it is uh this is the quote now we rub elbows with a lot of people every day you may not know anything about them but they might become your friends or even confidants one day so like like you kind of alluded, this movie is just basically about being lonely in a crowded, bustling city, and so like these two people are lonely for r- different reasons, but they like you just said, Grizz, they're lonely together in like a and and share something together that's like unusual, like then just kind of unspoken and unspoken. Yeah, they just meet in a, in a, at a bar, go to a hotel room together, and like normally when you see two characters in a movie meet at a bar and go to a hotel room, you have an expe- expectation of what's going to happen, but uh, that doesn't happen. And instead, she just it falls asleep very quickly and very hard, and he just is with her. And, you know, again, does an activity, watching old movies and eating room service is like a 
that's a lonely guy activity, but he's doing it with someone, kind of. And then yeah. does a very, like, and then cleans her shoes for her, which is, like, again, an, an intimate thing you would, like, might do for your partner. And he just did it for this woman that he just met and barely exchanged words with. Does, doesn't even know. <laughs> um, and then, and then you know, get into the second story and, like, the levels of intimacy that uh, Faye does with Tony Leung's character, which is a little weird, but, like, again, <laughs> very, very intimate um, and interesting. So, I don't know. It's, to me, it's like... You know, I have to say something on on that on that because okay. he led into it with the second story. Faye going into the apartment—that is literally the story that uh, the 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 wife at the beginning of Drive My Car, the story that she's imagining. Yeah. In Drive My Car, where the girl goes into a guy's apartment and you know doesn't steal things but wants to leave things there. That's literally this story. It which is it may not be. <laughs> It may not be entirely accidental. I, that's um, what I thought was maybe you know drive my car took some inspiration. Drive my car is, I mean you know just a minor connection, but as we said, this is inspired by Haruki Murakami, and drive my car is adapted, you know, adapted from a story by him. So that like you know there are some similar kind of in. Um, it, I think there's a sense of melancholy that both films have. And oh, that is sure. quite similar. And romanticism that is not necessarily a happy type of romanticism. You and know what I mean? Drive My Car also is very much about like intimacy and mm-hmm. knowing someone and what it means to know someone and like the yeah. uh, the difficulty of that. Um, great movie. But you, you definitely yeah, see the, the shades of that here. <laughs> and apparently the other film that Ryosuke Hamaguchi made last year, Wheels of Fortune and Fantasy, is an episodic movie that is very much inspired and similar to Chunking Express. I haven't seen it yet. I really want to, but apparently that there's some connection there as well. So he, he seems to really like uh, Wong Kawai as a director. Um, okay, I think we'll get more into some story beats as a second story uh, when we get there. But like, I just wanted to talk about some stylistic choices of, of the film, you know. Yeah. The, first of all, the opening. I've, mentioned, I've mentioned the performances that are, I think, great. Um, I don't know if we all agree, but I, I, I agree. Think yeah, all these four actors are really, really, really good. Um, and yeah, and like, there's some just weird, quirky uh, stylistic choices in this. From the visuals, where we do, we get a lot of slow motion, but used in a way that is kind of almost. I'm not entirely sure how he's done it. Like it's slow mo, but it's also like I think low frame rates and and moving the camera in a way that it looks blurred and yeah, it feels that's, the, that's what made me stick to my stomach was the uh, yeah. the action scenes cuz the, the low frame rate and it, and not just low frame rate but also very blurry with very blurry low frame right rate. and it's also like it's almost like he's changing the exposure somehow but like the center yeah. of the frame the center of the frame's in focus and everything on the edges of the frame is like like a motion mm-hmm. blur mm-hmm. um yeah i'm and sorry it made you sick grizz i think it looks awesome like i actually really I mean, like this i was a lot. fascinated by it. i thought yeah. it was like it was a very interesting visual choice mm-hmm. but and and i didn't mind it in the slow mos like where the right. where the, the central character is in focus and remaining still and the blur is all around them. That was very striking visually and I enjoyed it, but it's when they're chasing someone and mm-hmm. the cameras, you know, the angles are changing and, and it's, it's very much a, like a born identity, shaky cam, handheld <laughs> cam sort of. Yeah. Made you a little uh, queasy. That it literally, it literally made me a little sick to my stomach, which was, you know, unfortunate because, you know, I don't actually get motion sickness very easily. Like, mm. I, I'm pretty good about that. So like I was, shocked so, 
that I was yeah. like, oh, I need to, I, I, I need to pause for a second. <laughs> well, the visuals there are also kind of uh, aided by the fact that it's like these tight alleyways and, you know, the, the Hong Kong geography, the way the city's laid out and, like, people there's everywhere. claustrophobia. Yeah, exactly. There's a claustrophobia. Like, the camera's, like, whirring around people and corners and, and shops and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's telling for the setting, I think. You know, it's really setting up how where this and- place is. And those are the ones, yeah, in the beginning. But there's also later on in the film, there's a few shots where it's Tony Leung standing at the counter, drinking the coffee, and he's moving his arm in extreme slow motion to get a yeah. sip of the coffee. And yeah. in the foreground, that you see the bustling of the city. You see these blurred people just passing by really fast. I don't exactly know how they did it on a very limited budget in 1994. I mean, I think it was just that they're like, okay, Tony, take a sip of this coffee really soon. No, 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 no. Well, then the same thing, he he puts a coin into a jukebox and the same thing. It goes extremely slow while people behind him are moving at an incredible rate. It it gives you that sense of, like, this person having a moment to himself where he's not part of the bustling of the chaotic city while that keeps happening around you. And it... I don't know. I, I have like I've lived alone in a big city where I didn't know anyone, and and I got like I that something about that feeling that I that I really related to. There were moments where yeah. I would like stop at a bar, just take an espresso because it's Italy, and just look at people running back and forth and and be alone for a moment. And it's like it's both a sad and a kind of warm and welcoming moment. I don't know. It it, it re- I really connected with that type yeah, of stuff. Yeah, those are moments that I really connected with as well. And it's interesting that I, I noticed it more in the second half. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, did they do a slow-mo? Uh, no, because like, I, I think in the first like half... First half? I think in the first half, whenever they, they either go with these very blurry, fast, but at the same time slow down weird frame rate shots, it's always usually for action moments where he's yeah. like, there's a little chase scene or, you know, when she's shooting the guy at the end or, you know, she's running out around the airport because she's lost all these uh, Indian guys Indians. that were supposed to <laughs> smuggle drugs for her. Like, you know, it, this, uh, they use it for that. Whereas in the second one, it's kind of more still. So it's less yeah. uh, kind of, uh, you know, a little uncomfortable to look at. Um, even though, again, I think visually this movie, I think, is is, is insanely interesting. Yeah, the um, the first section gave me Danny Boyle vibes. Mm, yeah, uh, I could see that. Yeah, I could uh, see that. Particularly some of the, the like the blur motion. You know, we see that in 127 hours, which we, we talked about here and a lot. And yeah. then some documentary even. Some Doug Millionaire too. I feel like there are like oh, yeah. scenes where he's like running through Mumbai or whatever, and like you see the blur and the freeze frame that you see yeah. in this movie too. Now, so now they mention that, yeah, there's a Danny Boyle borrows a lot from this. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, for yeah. sure. And I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, good uh, call. Because it, it it is that it, it's something that I I traditionally think of as being very unique to Danny Boyle's movies, but you know here we see it he executed in a similar way, but uh, to a different uh, effect, which I mm-hmm. thought was very interesting. I think there is a generation of directors that kind of came up in the late late 90s in the West that were the first people who were actually able to have access to these Asian movies. And, and, and I think once you start seeing them, you do see some inspirations, you know, crossing over to, yeah. to Western films. Like, you know, uh, there's a film by John Woo called Bullet in the Head. It also stars Tony Leung. And apparently the story and the structure of that movie is very similar to Reservoir Dogs, which is Tarantino's first film. Like, they kind of uh, borrowed from these people. Great artists 
uh, steal. Do that's, borrow from each other. They yeah, do. that's a thing that that exists. And but it, it's it now that you mentioned Danny Boyle, I'm like, oh my god, yeah, it's it's almost uncanny. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about stylistically is like um, two things: the voiceover in a dialogue. I I really enjoyed that as well. I like how it puts you in the in the mind of these different characters, and it kind of does a I don't know if you guys have seen uh, um, some uh, French New Wave movies where yeah. mm-hmm. the what's happening on screen doesn't correspond to what is being said. And in the New Wave, that was kind of a big innovative thing. It, it yeah. doesn't feel quite as innovative in the same way. But like uh, a character will be talking while also there's action on screen and something is happening that it doesn't necessarily directly relate to what he's saying. Um and there's quick editing, little shots that are inserted there. I really enjoyed that stuff as well. The the narration gave me some film noir, yes, uh, uh, sure. vibes as well. Yeah. Which maybe like I I started to in, like the direction that the first story was going. I was expecting it to go into sort of a thriller, mm-hmm. uh, you know, genre there for a little bit. It doesn't. No. But but the narration combined with what was happening in the story, I was like, oh okay, you know, he's a cop. Is he going to get caught up in this? You know, drug she's a criminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, that's what I where I thought it was going, and then it's just very much not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I like the I like the narration when it's used, just because you know this is a story about lonely people. So like hearing their mm-hmm. internality, internal you know dialogue with themselves is 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 fitting, I think. But like, do we ever get narration from the first woman, the drug runner assassin person? We do. Yeah, we do. Okay. There are a few moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There, there are a few moments where where she does uh, talk. Um, my favorite about might... the Indians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she does talk about the Indians. My favorite one might be when Tony Lung is talking to the different, uh, you know, objects in his room, uh, yeah. just because he's so lonely that he starts speaking to his rise, you know, his little, uh, his, you know, stuffed animals and the soap. Oh, you're getting blankets. thin. Yeah. And, and then when I'm it, wondering, how does he not realize that someone's been in his apartment? It, the, maybe the, he does. Cool, maybe he does. The cool thing is, what I think. is, at one point, he does. Like, he, yeah. he's, you know, he's hugging the big Garfield, and he has, you know, at that point, he's like, well, something's going on, but... The soap it, got bigger. There's Come something, on, <laughs> there's nothing malicious about it. Like, it's a weird dynamic. I think Josh was getting at, what is Fei Wong doing in this movie? Like, yeah. why did she do that? It It's unclear. Well, she's... In a really, I mean, she's playing house is what she's doing because she is, yeah. You know, like you mentioned the letter in your little plot summary. What that letter is yeah. is it was a breakup letter from Tony Leung's past girlfriend yes. to Tony Leung, where she gives him his key back, and she mm-hmm. uses that key to take the place of the woman who was living with Tony Leung. Um, and she kind of plays house without him there in a really mm-hmm. weird way. Again, it's um, what does it mean to? Yeah, it's voyeuristic, but also, like, what does it mean to know someone? Like, being in their apartment without them and, like, kind of, like, cleaning their dishes and, like, playing in their fish tank, does that make you know a person? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, maybe. But, um, yeah, it is it is kind of weird, though. And it kind of felt like she gets a little bit of a rush out of doing it. Oh, for sure, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, again, the, the Drive it. My Car comparison is very interesting. Like, I, I didn't put that together, but that's a – the opening scene of Drive My Car is basically a woman describing this exact scenario. And it is very charged interesting. Mm. I feel like though the description in Drive My Car is much more sexual than oh, this yeah. is. Yes, yes, oh, like, it is. This explicitly, nearly... explicitly. Yes. This, this is sexual. She in this Faye is almost like just extremely quirky as a person, and she 
becomes interested in this weird, you know, silent uh, guy. He's kind of a quiet person just that just got, shows up in the place. I got manic pixie dream girl vibes from Oh yeah. That. The manic is pixiest <laughs> yes. dream girl. Um she's got a pixie cut. She got a pixie haircut. She even she she's doesn't even, even have a pixie, pixie cut. Um <laughs> Right, so did you guys notice, you guys might not have noticed on the first watch, but in, in the second watch, we actually do see both Faye and Tony Leung's character way early in the movie, like in the first 10 minutes. There is a scene where... There is a scene where Faye... You see Tony Leung leaning against the wall. You can uh, see Tony Leung leaning against the wall next to the escalator, which yes. is, a, you know, featured, you know, very heavily in the second half. And, and you can see Faye actually winning the giant Garfield. There's a moment where... The detective from the first half is is just kind of hanging around Hong Kong and he's next to this, you know, uh, kind of arcade place, I think. And she wins the big Garfield and takes it away. So they, they kind of intertwine that. I just thought it was cool to notice on the second watch. See, that is interesting because that's something that I probably would, would... I definitely didn't pick it up on the first one. Yeah, yeah. on the second watch, this time I watched it, I was like, oh my God, it's her. What, what's happening? <laughs> She's there. I did, the, I did the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood meme uh, <laughs> out of my screen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, final, another stylistic game. The music. How do you guys feel about the music in this? I Repetitive, thing, but, but I, good. Repetitive. Yes. Yes. Very good songs, but very repetitive. <laughs> uh, are, yes. are you dreaming about California, Josh? Did it pitch yes, in a California move? Yes. Mood. <laughs> we hear California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas six, eight, ten Seven times? Seven times, yeah. Something the like that? Uh, yeah. A lot, yes. Yeah. Um... We do also get other themes that are reoccurring. Uh, Things of Life by Dennis Brown, which is that song that they play on the jukebox. Yeah, the first, jukebox. The first like it, it kind of shows up a few more times. There's some melancholic jazz, slow jazz throughout the films in some slower moments. Uh, there's a big romance scene between, there's a flashback between Tony Leung and his uh, ex-girlfriend with uh, What a Difference a Day Makes by Dan- mm. Dina Washington. Yeah. Um, this movie on Wikipedia, it says that it's kind of credited with bringing some uh, uh, classic American songs in the public consciousness in Hong Kong that they didn't really uh, have an awareness of, which I thought was interesting. Also, uh, another thing that I I learned in this, there's at one point, Fei Wong basically in Hong Kong is a big pop star, more than she is an actress. Like she's more known in the West for this movie almost, but over there she's like this big pop star. And when she's in the apartment... And they do the little montage where she's brought the two bags and she's fixing up all the stuff and putting it uh, back uh, together. Um, there's a, a Cantonese version of the song Dreams by yeah. the Cranberries. Yeah. And it's performed by her. She's oh, the singer. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. That, it was her album that she released in the same year in 1994. And she did a cover of that. And it's there and in the credits. Um, yeah, we hear it again at the end. Yeah. yeah. And because this time I knew that she was a pop star, I was like, what? Could it be her that's singing? And I went down and found that it was a, a, a you know, a cover of that song. <laughs> Just thought it was interesting. Um, but yeah, do we want to get what? What haven't we talked about? Um, so the seconds we we kind of got through. I think the first story pretty. I mean, there. I think there's, there's less to the first story. There is less to it. I think I don't think there's yeah. as much more to say. Um, but basically, what happens in the second story? That one point. Um, you know, Tony Leung's character starts noticing that things are happening in his apartment and then he runs into her while she's in the apartment. And mm-hmm. she gets away, she runs away, and 
instead of like getting angry or being upset about it, he just shows up at, at the, you know, at the Midnight Express and asks her out. Um, and he asks her to go to this place called the California. And throughout the, the movie, she's been listening to California Dreaming and saying, oh, and they um, talk briefly. About I'm just, yeah, California. I'm just here, you know, to help out my cousin. But actually, I want to move to California and have, you know, you know, see, experience something different. And she doesn't show up for the date at the California and she actually does go to California. And what she does is she leaves him a hand-drawn boarding pass for a year later. And when she does come back a year later and she's now working as a flight attendant, just like the ex-girlfriend, which I thought was kind of weird. I don't know why. Yeah, that's that. a weird touch. That's weird. <laughs> that was weird. I agree. Um, but basically when she comes back, he's quit on, on the police. He's not a police officer anymore. And he's bought the the food stand the midnight express and mm-hmm. she shows up and they have this final scene where she draws him another boarding pass and she asks him well where would you like to go what destination should i write in and she and he just says Where, wherever you will take wherever me. you're taking me yeah. yeah and the movie ends um so how do you feel and about it ends how with the the cranberries or the cranberries cover of the cranberries again yeah it ends with the cranberries <laughs> again of her cover um so yeah what what did you make of how this second story develops and this ending? I just love that that song is a mm. great let's start the credits song. Yeah, it is, right? <laughs> it's really good. Um, I think the uh, the use of the music, like we said, was a little repetitive, but it mm-hmm. also uh, added to like what they what the characters knew about each other was these songs, and so like it was important to the story that they, you know, were listened on repeat, you know, so, so much. Uh, so I thought that was really well done. And I just thought that uh, the whole story was a little more interesting to me because like of how intimate it is of her going into his house and, you know, rearranging things, cleaning things up and all that. And we talked about, like Josh said, you know, how much do you know a person? Uh, and it, it's very, it's clear very early on in that second half that she, uh, likes this man and is interested mm-hmm. in this man, but for whatever reason will not express that to him. Uh, and she instead expresses that by breaking into his apartment. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they, they kind of strangely form this connection uh, almost in a completely unspoken way. Um, and they see each other a full year later and they almost instantly reconnect, which I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's something that is realistic or not, but I think in the context of the movie, it was it well, it, it worked. I, I think that it was important for her character because I think I think part of the reason that she doesn't express her feelings for him to him, she doesn't chunking she, express her feelings. She doesn't chunking express her feelings. <laughs> <laughs> she is uh, dealing with internal conflict. That yes, she's interested in this man, but she also does have these dreams of going off to California and experiencing the world. And that's like her personality is that's what she wants to do is just experience things. That's mm-hmm. all she really wants to do. Uh, so you know, it doesn't matter what job she has. doesn't matter where it is. She just wants to you know be in the world. Uh, and so the conflict is that by tying herself to this man, uh, that may limit her ability to do that. So that's why I think it's, it's great that she goes out and experiences the world for a year and then comes back, and at this point now, he's ready to do that with her, uh, which is why I think it's such a great resolution for that story arc. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, um, I think it's interesting that 
it's interesting that she becomes a flight attendant, much like Tony mm-hmm. Leung's past girlfriend. But before that happens, and one of the times when she's like in his apartment by herself, one of the montages, she actually puts on the flight attendant uniform, his ex-girlfriend's flight attendant uniform, and takes a picture of herself in the uniform in his apartment. Um, so again, I think like her becoming a flight attendant is almost like an extension of her playing house in a, to an extent to like a weird degree. But like like you just said, Grizz, uh, getting you know, you know, it's an intimacy, but at a, at a distance, and like she could at any point like express interest in him or ask him out but she kind of just like doesn't speak up whenever he's in this in the midnight express and just instead just continues to uh go to his apartment um so i don't know uh i I do like i like the resolution too um and i think that uh, i guess that's something she needs is to be somewhere else like she she wants to be close to this person but also is afraid to get close to this person so she um you know has an experience where maybe now she's ready to be close to someone possibly. Um, I think that's nice. For me, it's kind of like this similar thing in, as the first one where the characters may act in a way that isn't always completely consistent, but it to me feels like, well, people don't do that. Like people on a whim sometimes will say, no, I'm not showing up. I've decided I'm going to California. I was going to do it. I'm going to do it. Even if I'm into this person and, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to leave a, a note. Like, it, I don't know. I For me, these people feel very real, despite the situations that put him being kind of strange and, and, and or at least unusual or unexpected. I, 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 I really love it. I, I get to the end and I'm rooting for them uh, in a weird way, even though their relationship was, you know, they didn't really have a relationship. Like they barely, they spoke a few times. They joked around, you know, with the, when she, he helped her, carry the food and stuff but that's it but it, i don't know the movie manages to draw me in in that way um yeah it and i feel, so I feel makes me very happy. strongly i feel very strongly about that that yeah. second story and i loved it and yeah. uh but so ultimately the first story to me Jacks feels weaker yeah. and so that that's why i wish is it sort of like how uh i don't know if i've ever said it on the podcast 2001 a space odyssey for mm. me if the whole movie was how and dealing with how that would be a flawless, perfect movie for me. Uh, but, you know, because of all the other stories that, to me, don't feel as strongly connected as I want. I know Josh is like, like I can I'm see it, to, the rage boiling up in him. Explode. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but for me, that it ultimately doesn't work as well for me. And that's sort of the same thing with this, is that the second uh, half is so strong that I really just want more of that story. And, uh, and the first one becomes an afterthought for me. I think the first one kind of illuminates the second one, though, and vice versa. Yeah. You know, they reflect into each other. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of like the, the disconnected. I think it's a bold choice to have, to have two disconnected stories. That'd be kind of anthological. I like that. I think it gets the point across more um, of what this movie really is. Like like I said, you know, absent a more traditional story structure, that, you know, the the comparisons and, and contrasts of the of the two stories kind of help me figure out what this movie's trying to say. Yeah, and it's it's like Hugh said, it's about the loneliness mm-hmm. that all of these characters are, are dealing with, and the different and like incredibly different ways that they they handle it. Uh, but that's why I think I really do think that if uh, the third story had been, you know, part of this, that would have you know unified the theme more for me uh, than it does. But it sounds like it worked well for Josh and for Hugo that they they picked up on that theme completely. R- random question: Why why cops? Why cops? 
They're both cops. And it doesn't really... Neither really factors into the story that much. It doesn't influence the story. Yeah. I mean, I I, I guess... There's... um, The thing is, a lot of Hong Kong movies are about cops. That's true. And interestingly... Uh, Wong Kar Wai, his first few movies, apparently they had a lot of like, they kind of had to fit into more of what the studios at the time wanted. And this was the one where he kind of got to just get loose and do whatever he wanted. Um, And I don't think he ever made a movie where the characters are cops after this, but I don't know. I, that's a thing that I, I've been thinking about. I, I have no idea. And also like, because the fact that he, the fact that he does, that he stops being a police officer by the end Maybe that means something, okay. but I, yeah. I'm not sure what it does. Yeah, L- let me let me see if I can talk through this because we're kind of coming up with something. Uh, the first story, the fact that he's a cop and she's a criminal, I think is interesting, and mm-hmm. you kind of like that that creates another layer of nuance between them. I think um, these two lonely people's cro- paths crossing, like their paths might cross under different context, under different circumstances, but just the fact that they're two lonely people who share a night together i think is interesting considering they're on two sides of the law for the second story um i I guess it's interesting that like a a police officer is someone who theoretically interacts with members of the community on a fairly regular basis but like again kind of at a distance you know it's like you know there's a separation between the cop and the community they're protecting i guess so like he kind of can't be too overly friendly with like Faye as he encounters her out in the world um, cause that could be inappropriate, I guess. And also like, um, my dad was a cop for 21 years and like seeing, uh, you know, I know how that affected my mom, how she always worried about him and that kind of thing. So like the idea of like this police officer, not having anyone to go home to and not having anyone, uh, worrying about him as he's out there on the beat, even though he does, he doesn't realize it, but he does to an extent. Uh, he has this woman that he is not aware of <laughs> waiting for him at home. Um, I guess what I was what I was thinking of. You mentioned the ending. The fa- his demeanor is different when mm-hmm. he's a a restaurateur in the final scene than when he's a cop. You know that that barrier between them is kind of dropped, and the coldness is kind of dropped, and he's he, he's friendlier at that point. And I, I think yeah. that that kind of is illuminating about like his attitude towards interacting with people as a police officer versus just as a restaurant guy. He can he allows himself to be friendlier and, friendlier, and less cold yeah. and less detached and more and, himself. Yeah. Yeah, and in in a movie about how it how it feels to be extremely lonely in a city of millions of people, like that's I think interesting to me. His, his, the contrast of him talking to her as a restaurant owner versus as a cop. The cops, I thought, were my reason for why I thought that they he might have chosen to make them cops is because it does one, it sets you up with certain expectations for how a story is going to go, and then he gets to completely avoid those. Uh, which, you know, subverting expectations. So I thought that was a possibility. And the other thing I thought was that maybe it's because in both, they're both, the men are both cops and both of the women are criminals. In some way, yeah. (laughs) So I I just think it's, you know, might have been playing with that juxtaposition as well. Could be, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's some thought behind it that we're not maybe necessarily getting at, but there are definitely some options. Anyway, so as we're wrapping up, let's uh, rank uh, the film. Um, I think we all. I think we all. It's interesting that we all enjoyed it to varying degrees, and like even if it didn't completely work for you guys as much as it does for me, I'm very happy to have picked it. I think it was very fun to talk about it. Um, yeah. On my list, I would put it very high. I would rank it at number six on my personal number list six. Film to remembers quite high, quite high, quite high. 
What's yeah. that around for context? It is uh, right below Children of Men and right above Doctor Strangelove. Mm. Grizz? For me, and I, I will again say that I did enjoy the movie quite a lot. Uh, four out of five stars for me. Uh, and that puts it on my ranking, I, I put it at 43. Now, mm. we do talk about a lot of good movies on this podcast, so you know, I, no, I want to reiterate that it being 43 on my list does not mean that I don't think it's a great movie, because it is. Uh, but uh, it puts it, and this is going to upset Jackson for sure, <laughs> on my list. <laughs> Uh, it is just oh, yeah. below Iron Man 3. Oh, God. <laughs> and just above Brick, which are two oh, movies God. that Jackson loves. <laughs> well, rather, Brick is uh, a movie that Jackson loves. So and- Brick and Chunking Express are both in in Jackson's top four on Letterboxd. That's all yes. I'm saying. Mm. And so I think that Jackson's uh, opinion is around a 43. 43. <laughs> 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 Tough beat. Um, I have it. So let me say that, like, I have it where I have it. I ranked it before we discussed it. I, I think that this discussion uh, improved my opinion of the movie a little bit. And I've had the movie on on mute as we talk about it, as I always do when we talk about these. And I think just having it on, like, I think a second watch will definitely improve it for me. Um, mm-hmm. With that caveat, I currently have it at 37. So just behind The Lighthouse, John Wick, then Chunking Express. Just ahead of Thank You for Smoking and Police Story. So mm-hmm. that averages out. So uh, again, I have it at... Uh, sorry, I lost it. Give me a second. I have it at 37. Hugo has it at 6. Chris has it at 43. That puts it at number 32 on our overall list. Just behind My Cousin Vinny and 127 Hours. And just ahead of Police Story and Incendie. So. At number you said 32. Sorry, 32. 32. Chun King yeah. Express, thirty-two. Fair enough, I like this, fair Hugo. Enough. Thanks for uh, thanks for making yeah, us. I am uh, very happy thanks for bringing this to us. It. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like I, I don't think I said this yet. It's been on my list for years, for a long time. That's awesome. And um, I know a lot of people really like it, and I'm I'm very glad I saw it, and uh, I like it too. It's good. Nice. Yeah. Um. So what are we doing next week, Grizz? Well, uh, it's my turn to pick, and uh, so you know, Hugo mentioned this earlier as a movie that he watched recently. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, that's kind of the reason why I've decided to pull the trigger now. And this is when we're going to watch this movie. But so go ahead and, uh, you know, grab a blanket and some comfort food and anything that will put you in a positive mindset because this movie's going to bring you down. We're going to watch Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> yes. The, All right. Woof. We will not be smiling about, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm actually interested in, in, in talking I'm, about it. It's a great film. It's a great also film. a movie that's been on my list for many years and something I have not seen, but uh, I understand it's a pretty tough sit. Like yeah, among tough the sit. toughest of sits is my understanding of it. So yeah, and yep. uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it with you guys uh, for our next episode. Me too. Yeah, be great. All right, great. So uh, where can people find us on the internet? I will start because I have to leave. You can find that <laughs> me at Hugh underscore on Twitter. And you can follow me at Hugo Pinay on Letterboxd. At the Sleep Josh B on Twitter. At Josh W. Bradley on TikTok. Uh, moves that love, so can you on YouTube. Uh, at Good Game Grizz everywhere and twitch.tv slash Good Game Grizz uh, to watch me play video games and open Pokemon cards. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Hugo already left us, so bye. Come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>